Turn with me in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 1. Our text this morning is going to be Hebrews chapter 1, verses 4 through 14, but because verse 4 uh, picks up in the middle of a sentence, we're going to actually begin reading with verse 1. If you're using one of the Pew Bibles, you will find these verses on page 1001. Hebrews chapter 1, verse 1 through verse 14. This is the very word of God. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. For to which of the angels did God ever say, You are my son, today I have begotten you. Or again, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. And again, when he brings the firstborn into the world, he says, Let all God's angels worship him. Of the angels, he says, He makes his angels winds and his ministers a flame of fire. But of the Son, he says, Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of righteousness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. And you, Lord, laid the foundation of the earth. In the beginning, in the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. They will all wear out like a garment, like a robe. You will roll them up like a garment. They will be changed, but you are the same, and your years will have no end. And to which of the angels has he ever said, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? Are they not all ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation? That is the reading of God's word. Let us pray and ask for his blessing upon the reading and the preaching of his word here this morning. Father God, we come before you humbly, asking for your grace asking that the same Spirit who inspired the author to write these words would be at work here among us as we hear them read, as we hear them preached, opening our minds and our hearts to understand and to receive them, and empowering us to bring forth their fruit in our lives to the praise of your glory. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. In the opening paragraph of this letter, The author clearly sets forth his theme. He writes, Long ago God spoke by the prophets, but in these last days he has spoken to us by his Son. He then goes on to describe the Son in profound terms. 
He is the appointed heir of all things who sits at the right hand of the majesty on high. He is the creator and sustainer of the cosmos. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of His nature. As you hear these words, the theme of the Son's absolute supremacy, it's unmistakable. And therefore it is no surprise to hear Him say in in verse 4 that the Son has received the name that is by far more excellent than all other names. That's what we hear Paul say in Ephesians chapter 1 when he, when he writes that Christ was raised from the dead and seated at the right hand of God in the heavenly places far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. Paul says something similar in Philippians chapter 2. When he urges the Philippians to to have the mind of Christ, he writes to them that Christ, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death. On a cross. This is what Christ has done for his people. He has humbled himself. He he has become obedient to death, even death on a cross. And therefore, Paul says, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory. This is the picture of Jesus that the author wants us to see. He is the one who has received the name above all names. He is the one to whom the whole cosmos has been given. He is the one to whom every king will one day bow. He is the one that one day every tongue will confess to be the rightful Lord. So having given us this this grand picture of the Son, the question that confronts us in the the second part of chapter 1 is why does the author specify that, that this Son, the one who is supreme to all, why does he specify in particular that he is supreme over the angels? Why? Why angels? Some believe the They encountered angels face to face throughout the the biblical records. Certainly many times they were tempted to worship. The glory of the angels was so far beyond anything in this world. It was was so far beyond anything that they had ever encountered before that when they came face to face with an angel, they often fell on their faces in worship. And and Scripture records many times the angels had to say, Do not worship me. I am a creature like you. And we know that there were some in the early church, Paul tells us in his letter to the Colossians, there were were some who were promoting the worship of angels. And so it it makes sense to some that 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 idolatry, that specific form of idolatry, must have been present in the Hebrew church. The fact is, we don't see any hint of it throughout the letter. 
there's no hint of, of angel worship in, in the letter to, to Hebrews. And therefore, it seems unlikely that that is the author's concern. But if he's not concerned about the worship of angels, why does he take the time in seven Old Testament quotations, why does he go to these links to demonstrate Jesus' superiority to the angels? I want to suggest to you that he mentions the, the angels and he demonstrates Jesus' superiority to the angels because of the role that the angels played in the Old Covenant. Remember, we know that these Hebrews are being tempted to forsake Christ. They're being tempted to, to return to Judaism. They were fed increasing persecution as, as Christians. And at least for some, they were wondering whether or not they would be better off to go back to their former faith, to their pre-Christian faith, to the faith that had been delivered to their forefathers by angels. Now, admittedly, when we read the Old Testament today, we, we don't immediately see the role that the, the angels played. It's not immediately obvious to, to modern readers in the Old Testament texts themselves, but often in the New Testament, we have reference to the role that the, the angels played. For example, in his speech before the Sanhedrin, recorded for us in Acts chapter 7, Stephen refers to the Jews as those who received a law delivered by angels. It was taken for granted that the angels had been the mediators of the law given to Moses. In fact, Paul says the same thing in his letter to Galatians, referring to the law as that which was put in place by angels through an intermediary. And maybe most significantly for us, the author of Hebrews mentions this. He, he mentions the role of angels in, in chapter 2 when he refers to the Old Testament covenant as a message declared by angels. And so it seems that the author is concerned to show Jesus' superiority to angels because the Old Testament covenant, the, the Old Testament faith to which these Hebrews were being tempted to return, it was a faith, it was a law, it was a covenant delivered to the people by angels. And I suspect that the role of angels, the role of angels in, in delivering this law to God's people had a lot to do with their desire to return to it. Think for a moment about the, the situation that these Hebrews found themselves in. Why were they being tempted to forsake Jesus and, and return to Judaism? They were being tempted because following Jesus was leading them into ever-increasing trouble, ever-increasing persecution. The author will tell us later in the letter that they have not yet resisted to the point of, of shedding blood. But they had been persecuted. They, they had had their property plundered. They had had their freedom taken and the clear implication is that, that bloodshed is on the horizon. Bloodshed is coming long before following Jesus may even cost them their lives. Imagine you were in their shoes, as some are today in other parts of the world. What would you think? 
If you're like me, I, I suspect you would be wondering if Jesus was really the Savior you thought he was. Like John the Baptist languishing in prison. You would want to know, what, did I get it wrong? Did, did I misread the signs? Is Jesus really the one? Is he the Savior we thought he was? Is he the long-promised Messiah? If you found yourself in their shoes, you would be tempted to wonder if you shouldn't go looking for a better Savior. One who could protect you from the attacks of all those who are threatening you. And if the Old Covenant really was delivered by angels, doesn't it make sense that angels would protect those who kept that covenant? Maybe the mistake they made was, was leaving that covenant. Maybe the mistake they made was, was forsaking the protection of, of angels. Maybe the angels can provide a better salvation. When you read the Old Testament, you, you know why they might think along those lines. Think of the, the story of Elisha and his servant when the, the Syrian army surrounded the city of Dothan where they were staying. The servant was understandably scared. He was, he was petrified. He was, he was certain that this was the end. Until Elisha prayed that his eyes would be opened. And what is it that he saw when his eyes were opened? He saw that those who were protecting them were far greater than those who were against them. For he saw that the mountains were filled with horses and chariots of fire. He saw that the city of Dothan was surrounded and protected by the hosts of heaven, by an army of angels. And that's the protection for which the Hebrews longed. That's the protection that they're wondering. Maybe if we go back, maybe that protection will be restored. Maybe the angels can do a better job than Jesus seems to be doing. You see, it wasn't a hypothetical question whether Jesus was, was better than the angels. They were facing real persecution. And everything suggested that it was only going to get worse. And so they needed to know, to whom will I entrust myself? In whom will I seek refuge? To whom shall I flee? The author knows it's a real question for his readers. It's a question that that he seeks to answer by pointing them to the superiority of Jesus. That's precisely why this chapter is so relevant for us today. Because you see, we are facing the same question that the Hebrews faced. I doubt many of us are tempted to return to Judaism in order to, to garner the protection of, of angels. But I suspect that many of us have wondered whether or not we need to seek a better Savior than Jesus. We may not put it so bluntly, but in our desperate moments, we have to acknowledge that it doesn't seem to us that, 
that Jesus seems to be doing all that great a job. We have not yet faced the, the shedding of blood, but we suffer. We suffer for his name's sake, and we just suffer generally. Life in this world is nasty, brutish, and short. Whether it's the ravages of disease or, or the whims of a malicious co-worker, whether it's the, the rumors of a, of a neighbor or the betrayal of a friend, whether it's the, the pressures of unemployment or the, the ridicule of some unreasonable enemy, we suffer, and sometimes greatly. And we wonder, is this really what salvation is supposed to look like? Is this the best that Jesus can do? If it is, maybe we need a better Savior. We feel the weight of such thoughts, even if we're not willing to say them out loud. Especially when we're in, there, when we're in the middle of the trial. It's in the midst of the trial that we are, we are tempted to, to look to, to money or political power or, or even ourselves to secure our own well-being. If I can just save enough, I'll be safe. If we can just get the right people in office, we'll be protected. If I can just develop the right skills and, and habits, then I will be able to guarantee my good. It's the way that we are tempted to think. We're probably not tempted by angels so much. But we are certainly tempted by alternative saviors. And therefore, like the Hebrews, we need to be reminded that Jesus is better. And it's precisely what the author does here in the second part of, of chapter 1 with, with seven Old Testament texts that point to us clearly the superiority of the Son. Let's look at them together. The first two texts are from Psalm 2 and 2 Samuel 7. And again, both emphasize to us that Jesus is the, the appointed king. Notice what the author asks. He says, For to which of the angels did God ever say, You are my son, today I have begotten you? Or again, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. Obviously, both texts refer to, to Jesus as the Son. But again, remember, this is, this is not a reference to His eternal Sonship as the eternal second person of the Trinity, but rather this is, this is a reference to His role as the Son who is King of Israel, the, the Son who is the appointed Savior of God's people. This is the role which He has received as the crucified and risen Lord. He is the Christ the Anointed One, the Messiah. We see this in Psalm 2, which was our call to worship this morning. In the opening verses, the, the nations are, are raging against God. They are, in effect, shaking their fist in God's face and saying, we will not be ruled by you. It is a picture of, of mankind and, and rebellion against God. As they, as they pronounce with great boldness, we will burst their bonds apart and cast their cords from us. But God is not threatened 
by their rebellion. And in verse 4, we're told that, that he laughs at their pompous protest. He, he holds them in derision. He, he says confidently, I have set my king on Zion. God is announcing in unquestionable terms that his anointed will reign. His appointed son will sit upon the throne. The nations will be his heritage. The ends of the earth will be his possession. Those who stand against him will be smashed like pottery. But those who take refuge in him, they will be blessed. And who is this king Who is this son who will sit upon the throne? Who is the one to whom the kings of the earth must bow? It is none other than the appointed son. The one who on that day, the day of his resurrection and ascension, was seated at the right hand of the majesty on high. It is not the angels who will rule God's kingdom for eternity. As impressive as they are, they are but servants of the King. And the King is the risen Son. It's exactly what we see also in 2 Samuel 7. In 2 Samuel 7, we we have the the record of God's covenant with David, God's promise that His Son would, would sit upon the throne. And of course, that that promise was was originally fulfilled in Solomon. But it didn't take Solomon long to prove that he was not the full fulfillment. And, and, And the people of God began to look for a perfect fulfillment. And they began to know through the the inspiration of the Holy Spirit that one day one would come who would be the Son who would sit upon the throne forever. And who is David's greater son? It is Jesus. Jesus is the eternal king. God never said that the angels would save his people. God never told us to to look to the angels for salvation, but rather he said the son would sit upon the throne. He said the son would deliver his people. He said the son would would lead them into righteousness and peace forever. The the son is the promised Messiah, not the angels. And therefore to look to the angels or to, to look to any of the other alternative saviors that tempt us is to reject God's revealed word regarding the plan of salvation. God has told us where to find salvation. He has has told us where to set our eyes. He he has told us where to take refuge. And the author is challenging us. Will we listen to Him? Will we follow His Word? We are in a hostile environment. We are surrounded by enemies. We don't feel safe. And so we are tempted to look for a better Savior. But there is only one Savior. There is only one Son. And we must cling to Him. For in Him, while we may have to pass through the dangers of this present evil age, in Him the floods and the fires cannot hurt us. They cannot overwhelm us. They cannot harm us. 
For if we are in Him, we will be saved. We see it again in the the third text that the author quotes. It's, It's a little harder to identify, but it is almost certainly Deuteronomy 32, 43. In the ESV, it reads this way, Rejoice with Him, O heavens. Bow down to Him, all gods. So in our Bibles, in our translation, angels are not specifically mentioned, but the Old Testament people of God knew that the angels were referred to, that that this reference to to heavens was was referring to the heavenly hosts. Therefore, it's not surprising to to find our author quoting this passage in, in this context. But what's interesting is that the author applies this text to Jesus. You see, in the original, in the, the original of, of Deuteronomy, it clearly refers to Yahweh. Yahweh is the one whom the angels are to worship. And yet the author feels free to apply it to Jesus. Why? Well, it's because of what he has just said. Jesus is the appointed son. Jesus is the appointed king in God's kingdom. In the context of of Deuteronomy, it is Yahweh who who rules his his kingdom. It is Yahweh to whom the angels must bow. But the author of Hebrews understands that this is a reference to Jesus. Because it is Jesus who exercises Yahweh's rule. And think about what that means. Think about the, the implications of that. This means that the author of Hebrews sees Jesus, the Son, as Yahweh, as as God, as the only one worthy of worship. Jesus is not merely an instrument of God's rule, as the kings of the earth might be, but rather He rules as God. Yes, He is distinct from the Father, but nevertheless He is equal to the Father. Together they are one God, but they are distinct, both equal for worship. You you understand why the church had to formulate a doctrine like the Trinity as they they tried to make sense of this mind-boggling revelation that there are three who are God, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit, and yet there is only one God, the God of Israel, Yahweh. But here the emphasis is on the fact that, that Jesus is God, He is the one who is to be worshipped even by the angels. And so again, the the question is, is put to the readers, whom would you rather have for you? Whom do you want on your side, God or the angels? For us, the question might be, whom would you rather have for you, God or the President of the United States? Whom would you rather have for you, God or your savings account? Whom would you rather have for you, God or yourself? All these things, angels, the president, your savings, all these things are under his control. All these things are at his Disposal. He can use them to accomplish His purposes, but they can do nothing on their own. And certainly they can do nothing contrary to His will. If God is for you, it doesn't matter who the president is. 
If God is for you, it doesn't matter what the economy does. If God is for you, it doesn't matter what disease threatens your life. In the moment, you might suffer. But the suffering of God's people in this life will be slight and momentary compared to the eternal weight of glory that is theirs in Christ. For salvation belongs to the Lord Jesus. And He has promised it to all who take refuge in Him. We see this again in Psalm 104 and Psalm 45, quoted in verses 7 and 8. The grammar of Psalm 104 is a bit, a bit tricky. We, we wonder, at least I do, what exactly does it mean to say He makes His angels winds or He makes His angels a, a flame of, of fire? In the original, it seems to, to mean that, that, that even the wind and the fire are servants of the Lord doing His, his will. But, but the author seems to see a reference to, to angels here as, as, the, as the ones who, who maybe hold wind and fire in their hands, the ones who are, who are using it to accomplish God's purposes. But, but however the phrase is understood, this much is clear. The angels are God's ministers. The angels are His his servants. They are doing His will. They are working at His behest. They follow His commands. But the Son gives the commands. The Son sits upon the throne. We we see the same thing in Psalm 45. Again, Psalm 45 is, is about Yahweh. But the author again understands that, that it is talking about Jesus And I think there are two reasons here in this text that that tell us why the author knew this text was about about Jesus. The the first is the the reference to being anointed above his companions. Remember, Christ is is Jesus' title. It is the the Greek translation of of the Old Testament language of Messiah, which is the anointed one. In the Old Testament, there were others who were anointed, kings and priests, and even sometimes prophets were anointed to the work that they had been given to do. But Jesus is the anointed one. He is the one who has been anointed above all others. He is the Christ, the Messiah. And so the reference to the one who is anointed above all is a reference to Christ. And this helps us make sense of the, of the second thing we see here, which is the reference to God's God. It's a strange language, but, but notice the psalmist is, is addressing God. Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. And yet, speaking to God, he says, therefore, God, your God has anointed you. It's a mind-blowing description that, that here we have God's God being addressed. And that can be none other than the Son who is equal with His Father. The Son who is God. Taken together, it is is clear that that the author sees these psalms as as pointing us to Jesus who is served by the angels. One commentator puts it this way, that the angels serve before the throne. The Son rules from the throne. And so again, the question is, it's clear. Whom do you want for you? To whom will you entrust yourself? Jesus or the angels? Jesus or your savings account? Jesus or the president? 
Jesus or your own self-discipline. It is Jesus who rules. It is Jesus who holds the scepter. So we see again in Psalm 102, quoted in verses 10 through 12. And yet again, a psalm describing Yahweh is applied to the Son. The, the psalmist is crying out to God from the midst of some great distress. He says at the beginning of the psalm, Hear my prayer, O Lord. Let my cry come to you. Do not hide your face from me in the day of my distress. Incline your ear to me. Answer me speedily on the day when I call. At first, he admits that he feels forsaken. He feels forgotten. He feels abandoned. But as the psalmist so often do, he reminds himself of what he knows. He preaches the gospel to his soul, and he walks himself back to hope. And how does he do that? He does it by reminding himself that it is the Lord who is enthroned forever. This thought ensures him that God is not incapable of keeping his promises. And therefore the psalmist knows that, that God's purposes have not been thwarted. He doesn't understand and he doesn't pretend to. He, he doesn't understand God's timings. He, he doesn't understand God's plan. But nevertheless, he knows God will keep all his promises in his perfect way at his perfect time because it is God who sits on the throne. It's the same comfort that we so often cling to in the midst of tragedy. When we say, I don't begin to understand but I know God is on the throne. We are clinging to the comfort of God's sovereignty. I suspect you know what it is to, to take comfort in that truth. It's what the psalmist is doing here. It's what the author of Hebrews wants us to see, and he wants us to remember specifically this, that when we take comfort in the God who rules, we are taking comfort in the Son, for He is the Sovereign King. He is the one who sits upon the throne. It is the Son who laid the foundation of the earth in the beginning, and it is the Son who will remain King even after this present world is changed like a garment. Therefore, it is the Son to whom we must look for salvation. It is the Son in whom we must Take refuge. As you face trials this week, as you face trials this year, will you put your hope in created things which are by nature perishable? Or will you hope in Him who is eternal and unchanging from everlasting to everlasting? It's an obvious choice. And it's meant to be. That's exactly the author's point. He wants us to see the utter folly of putting our hope anywhere other than in Jesus. That's a point he drives home with his final text from Psalm 110. You may remember that Jesus himself quoted this psalm in his earthly ministry when he, when he asked the Pharisees how David's son could be David's Lord. And here the, the emphasis is, is similar 
The author is, is pointing out that Jesus is David's greater son. Jesus is the one who sits at the right hand of the Father. Jesus is the one who will subdue all his enemies. Now he acknowledges in chapter 2 that we do not yet see all things subjected to him. But Jesus is the one who will reign. He is the one who will one day bring about his perfect, pleasing will in every square inch of the cosmos. Therefore, if you cling to Christ, if you rest in him, if you flee to him for refuge in the moment of your distress, you will get the angels because they serve him. But if you forsake him, if you flee to some other hope, then you will be left utterly hopeless. For the Son is the King. The Son is the Lord. The Son is the one who gives salvation to His people. He is the only sure hope. He is the only solid rock upon which we can stand. If He is for you, none can stand against you. He can and will work all things together for your good. But if you are separated from Him, it matters not who or what else is for you. It matters not who is in the White House. It matters not how much money you have in the bank. It matters not how much self-control you have developed. Therefore, let us pray to God for His mercy that He might grant to us the grace to entrust ourselves to the Son. Let us fix our eyes upon Jesus, holy, fully, without reservation. May He be our only hope, for He is the only hope. And by God's grace, He is the only hope we need. That's why we call this good news. Do you believe that? Amen.